Ephesians 5, 21 through 24. Let me read it. We'll walk through it together. Paul writes and he says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, most of your Bibles, as you open them up and you look at chapter 5, what you're going to find is this section, the way that the editors of your Bible put it together, they, they started in 22, right? They started in 22. That's how most Bibles put this together. That's how my ESV here puts it together. But the interesting thing to note, and this is a couple of weeks old, and so um, I'm, I'm going to pretend that, that most of you don't know this, and I'm going to humor uh, that and, and, and try and refresh those of you who might have forgotten and thought of other things since the last time we were together. Look back at verse 18 in the same chapter. Look back at verse 18 in the same chapter. It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But what is the positive that he calls them to? What's the positive that he calls them to? He says, be filled with the Spirit. This is the overarching uh, strong verb imperative command given in this section. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And the interesting thing is, is that when you get into verse 21, it goes back to this idea of being filled with the Spirit. And it also supplies the verbal idea in verse 22. In fact, there, the, the idea of submitting is only implied in verse 22. It's, it's only found in the Greek in verse 21. And so for those of you who come to my Wednesday night class, this is, this is very familiar with you. You understand what I'm talking about. For everybody else, this is the reason you don't come to my Wednesday night class, Right? And so I want you to understand how this works. He gets into 18. He says, don't be drunk. Don't do that. Instead, he pairs it. He says, be filled with the Spirit. This is the strong idea. This is the, this is the strong idea in there, the strong verb in there. And he goes down through, and he describes all the different ways that will be manifest, the ideas, the, the way of life that will be manifest in the Christian who is filled with the Spirit. They're going to make melody in their heart. They're going to be giving thanksgiving. They're going to be having psalms and songs and hymns come out of them. And so we talked about in the life of the body, there is this edifying effect to singing together. So that as I sit beside Joe, and, and I know he's going through things, and as I sit beside uh, Steve, and I know he's going through things, or, or Chase, or Zach, and I know they're going through things, that hearing them sing to God praises to his name in the midst of tremendous struggles is building me up. And it's allowing me to stand beside them and build them up. So there's this edifying effect to doing these things. And the enabling from that comes from, comes from being filled with the Spirit. This same filling of the Spirit enables submission. That's the argument Paul is making. No, it's, it's, it's decidedly important that we understand verse 21 before we roll through the rest of this, or you're going to do tremendous damage to this passage. In fact, I've, I've heard of a number of couples, and especially this is, this is a male problem, that in the midst of arguments, the husband, it seems that he's only ever memorized one verse in the entire Bible, and in the midst of this argument, his wife is espousing this tremendously uh, eloquent and, and cool, calm, and collective deal, and what does he say? Stupidly, he pulls this out of his back pocket like it's this ace trump card, and he says, you just need to, yeah, which man said that? There you go. Brother will pray for you. In terms of honesty, Valerie and I had not been married very long. 
and I made the same critical error. I can still see us in the kitchen, our small seminary housing. I'm in the kitchen, she's in the living room, we're two feet apart. It was... <laughs> she's calm, cool, and collective, whatever. You can't pull that card back fast enough. You just can't do it. Anyway, don't, don't do that. If you're newly married or thinking about being married, just forget you ever heard anything about that. Look what Paul says. He says, be filled with the Spirit. He goes into verse 21, and this is the crux for understanding the rest of this passage. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ. When we are filled with the Spirit, this isn't something that follows after salvation. In salvation, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. But in salvation, as you walk it out over the course of your life, you're continually giving over more and more things to Jesus, asking him to continue to refine your life, giving more and more over to him, and the Holy Spirit is invading ever-increasing areas of your life your speech, your actions, the way that you do things. And so what he says in here, he says, one of the things that, that manifests of being filled with the Spirit is being able to submit to one another. Now, in verse 21, I would submit to you that there is no reference to marriage, is there? In fact, he says, be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of what? Reverence to Christ. Another translation might say, Uh, Submit, therefore, to one another out of the fear of Christ. So this is how believers engage with one another. And we talk about this especially in terms of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about Jesus and his submission to the Father. But one of the things we find is that Christians, we tend to disagree with one another. Like all this talk about being in one accord, we come together and there's a decision to be made with two Christians and there's at least five opinions of what needs to be done. There's at least five opinions of what needs to be done. But what he tells us in this, he says, if you are filled with the Spirit, when you engage with others, what do you do? You submit to one another. You submit to one another. This idea of mutual deference to one another. So when Steve and I come together, we're seeking to advocate for the other's opinion. We're seeking to live out what would be best for the other person. When Dee and I come together, we're seeking to live out what would be best for the other person. We're seeking to live this thing out. What he calls us to, this high mark of what it is to be filled with the Spirit, is to submit to one another. Like how many church splits, how many uh, angry words spoken would have remained unsplit and unspoken had we sought to live this out? That we sought to submit to one another. So he calls us to this amazing idea of submitting to one another. Let me, let me tell you that this discussion here of, of gender roles in marriage is one that, that there's a tremendous amount of debate over. There are a lot of resources that you can avail yourself to that, that will kind of be on one side or another, but our culture is decidedly on one side and one side only, and that to a dogmatic and angry degree. And so it comes to the the wife who would desire to live out what I believe is a godly interpretation of this passage, and it would tell her no. It would tell you no. It would call you to live out instead radical feminism. Let me just submit a couple of things to you before we get into this passage. There is nothing in here that states that man is better than woman. Any of you that have been married for any long time recognizes that, if anything, woman is slightly better than I'm I'm trying to get lunch made here. 
Let's look back at this. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created men and women. He created them to be unique and different. He created masculine traits and feminine traits. He created gender not some type of fluid determination that you come to over the course of your life, but as a distinct thing. He made some male. He made others female. Now, it's interesting that even in the Trinity, God's manifestation of three in one to us, he demonstrates functional subordination. This is one of these key terms that if you do any reading in this debate, you'll come across over and over again. That, that, that although there is equality in the Godhead, that God the Father is God, that God the Son is God, that God the Holy Spirit is God, there is equality in the Godhead, just, there is, just as there is equality in your marriage. The husband is fully made in the image of God. The wife is fully made in the image of God. They are image bearers together. One is no more worthy than the other. They're both worthy. And so there's discussion, this discussion that goes along. It says, no, 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 no. The son is not eternally functionally subordinate to the father. Now, this is, this is theological parlance, and I'm trying to bring you along, but I don't want you to be ill-equipped for the conversations that you're likely to have if you investigate this discussion. In John 1, John writes, he says, In the beginning was the word. So this gives us the idea that Jesus is preexistent, right? So he exists with God prior to anything being made. This is decidedly important, not just in terms of our understanding of Christ, but in terms of our understanding of gender roles. He says, in the beginning was God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In this, we find commonality of Jesus and God. Do you read this? Do you see this? Don't let me lose you. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made, what? Through him and without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What we recognize in this is that the son is functionally subordinate to the father. The father says, go and create, and the son does what? He goes and creates. The author of Hebrews gives us a similar idea in Hebrews 1 and 2. He says, in these last days he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us by his son, God chooses to speak through the Son, and this is what he says of him, whom he, God, did something. God did what? He appointed the Son to be the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. The Son is functionally subordinate to the Father. Not in terms of essence or degree. He is holy God of very God. But he is functionally subordinate to the Father. Recognize that in John 3.16. The Father did what he gave the Son. To what end? For the forgiveness of sins. He gave the Son over to the world so that we might be able to be forgiven. So when we come into this passage, what I want you to recognize is that there is no real distinction and difference between the honor of man and the honor of woman. There is in terms of function. And this function is one that is set in the created order. And it is one that is set in the heart of God and laid out in his word for us to abide by. If we, if we are going to be salt and light in our communities, one of the things we must return to is biblical roles of manhood and womanhood. Biblical roles of manhood and womanhood. 
Not that we seek to have this accommodational approach where we say everything in our culture is, is not good, but what we want to do is adjust the Bible so that it doesn't radically offend those we come into contact with. And, and let's just do that in our homes to start off with. This is a terrible idea. One of the reasons we've lost the culture war is because we quit living biblical gender roles in our homes. It's gotten to the point where we say, now gender is this fluid idea that one can determine on their own. Sexuality is this fluid idea. And I can want to be with a man today and a woman tomorrow, and, and then I want to be with a man the next day. God's word gives us this decided impression that even as gender is not a fluid thing, but a static relationship assigned by him, so too the natural function, function for a man is for a woman, and the natural function for a woman is for a man. Romans, gives, Romans 1 gives us a clear picture that any deviation of that is not something God ordained or God sanctioned, but is a deviation of the design and the plan of God and something not to be celebrated. If you struggle with this idea and how to articulate it to those you come into contact with, other than just saying something so pejorative against homosexuality that you have nothing to say, there's a great book for you I would commend to you. It's called Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. If you're a slow reader, you can still read it in a couple of days. It's very short. It's a tremendous book, and I would commend it to you if you're struggling with how to articulate your stance in this position in light of those things happening in our culture. Is God anti-gay by Sam Albury? Look what he says here. So we've got this understanding, we, we get it, we're coming into it, we recognize that in Ephesians 4, 24, that we have put on the new image, not one image for man and one image for woman, but we have put on this new image, a likeness of God. And we come into this and we recognize that that. What he says in verse 22 is wives submit. Wives submit. And, 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 and the husband hears this and quietly he rejoices. The wife hears this and all she thinks about are the stupid decisions her husband makes. Why did he buy that car? Why did he get that haircut? Oh Lord, he couldn't even dress himself. If it wasn't for me, I would hate to see what he would look like. This is not what this is talking about. Your husband will continue to make stupid decisions for that I am indeed sorry and my wife can commiserate with you. But what he says in this is, wives submit. Now, there is particularity in this. Who does he say to submit to? Does he say to submit to all husbands? Does he set up this idea of male hierarchy over everything? No. In fact, he particularizes it in each individual marriage. He says, submit to who? Your own husbands. Now, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand something. This idea of submission isn't something your, your husband forces you into. If you are a husband and you are seeking to force your wife to submit, you're, validate, you're validating a role of manhood that is antithetical, that is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scripture. Do you understand that? If you are forcing your wife into submission, it's no longer referred to as submission. It's you being a tyrant and a bully. This is true. There's no amount of, uh, of chest beating, hair growing out of your chest and, and coming up out of your collar and you're wearing turtlenecks just to keep all the machismo bottled up that, that entitles you to speak down to your wife. She is a co-image bearer of the king. To speak to her is anything other than that does great damage to the gospel. You understand me? Women... If your husband, if you've had men in your life that have abused you verbally, 
physically, and they have used the Bible to validate that, what they have done is pervert this text. It's a gross misappropriation of this text. It is something that is wholly untrue and false. And because of what they have done to you, allow me to say, I am sorry. Sorry they haven't demonstrated a, a vibrant understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry that they have done great damage to you as a co-image bearer of our King and Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so sorry. You didn't deserve it. In a bygone era, he would be taken out and he would be administered some swift justice. But in the day of political correctness, we will pray for him instead. There's no right for that. There's no place for that. Now look what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands. It doesn't mean you have to wholeheartedly agree. Like he's not pointing at this and saying, look, you're never going to disagree. What you have to be is meek and mild. No, what he's saying in this is find yourself coming in underline with your husband. You can disagree. You can hash things out. In fact, there should be tremendous disagreement because you're seeking to sharpen one another. You're working out your salvation together, struggling in the home to display the gospel. And that's difficult. Why? Because you are two sinners. Recognize that in every marriage ceremony, it's decidedly crowded up where I stand. Because not only do we have the wife and the husband, what we have in this scenario are really three or four people. We've got the wife as she supposes herself to be, the wife as, she supposed, as her husband supposes her to be. We have her as she really is, and then, of course, we also have her as the Bible calls her to be. And the same is true of him. We have him as she supposes him to be, him as he has shown himself to be to her, and I feel so sorry when she figures out that that's not really who he is. And then we have him who he really is and him who the Bible calls him to be. It's no wonder that in marriage we have incredible strife and we have to struggle to work these things out. But when God comes to the wife, what he says to her, the words of Paul is, submit to your own husbands. But look at this treasure he has here. In submitting to your husbands, you're doing so as unto the Lord. You're finding your obedience to God tied into falling in under line with your husband. That's what he says in this passage. Now look what he goes on to do here. He, he, he's giving some reasoning, some rationale for why this should happen. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. He uses this terminology. And you remember that it was spoken of as Christ in the church. He says the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is the head of the wife. This doesn't mean he gets to make all, this, all the decisions. This doesn't mean for us that he is the smartest. In fact, in many of our relationships, I've spoken to both the husband and the wife. And for many of you, your wife is decidedly uh, more marvelous, brilliant, well-spoken than you are. Or I can speak with your wife in terms of theology. I, I talk to you about, about pneumatology, and you say, Pneuma what? What? If it were in terms of hunting and gutting things, you would be able to wax eloquent. But all other things, your wife, she is the one in charge. She knows where the, the checkbook is at. She knows how to manage your finances. And she knows how to keep you in line and out of jail. This is in terms of of authority before God. He says the husband is the head of the wife. Look back at 122 in Ephesians because he's making this parallel. He's bringing this in line of Christ and the church. 
And husbands, so begins the whipping that you will long endure starting this week and carried on into next week. Speaking of Jesus, and if you've not read chapter 1 recently, you should go back and read it. It's, it's this beautiful Trinitarian statement of how God has saved us through Jesus and sealed us by the Holy Spirit up to 113. And then he changes, he, transi- he, he transitions, and he begins to talk about Jesus and how great and marvelous and amazing he is. Starting in 119, he says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he did what? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in, in this relationship as head over the wife, we recognize that Christ himself is head over the church. Now what does Christ do in this role as head over the church? Recognize first that God gave the son to let his blood be poured out to establish him as head over the church. This is a tremendous calling that already in this, we see that as the husband functions in this role of headship, it is a sacrificial role. It is not one of chest-beating machismo, but one of seeking the best for the one that he's been matched with. That in his role as head, Jesus Christ has brought us who were once far off to 13. He has brought us near by the blood of Christ. That in his role, he has, he's done tremendous things to reconcile us, verse 16, and that he might reconcile us both in God to one body through the cross, therefore killing all hostility. And then back in 5, 2, he says, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What it means for the husband to be the head of the wife is to sacrificially love and serve her. And he's going to spell this out next week for us. But some of you won't be here. And I don't want you to go home and the only thing you heard me say was that your wife must submit to you. It's a true statement. But your role is one of selfless, sacrificial service without end. And the amazing thing about her submission, friend, is that you cannot make her submit. This isn't a challenge for you to take on. This is a truth revealed in Scripture. She has to willingly submit herself to you, just as the church has to willingly submit itself to Christ. Her lack of submission doesn't mean that you're no longer the head of the wife. It just calls you to deeper and deeper sacrifice and service for her. That's a true and difficult statement for many men to take in. Some of you treat your wife like you would an employee at work. She is no employee. She is of equal stature and honor with you before God, and your role is to sacrificially love and serve her. Look what he'd said there. The husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, himself, its savior. How did Christ become the savior of the church? By dying. By dying. If you want to serve as the head of your 
wife in your home, you die to self, live to serve her. Do you hear me on that? If you want to serve as the head of your wife in your home, you die to self and you live to serve her. If you want to be the spiritual leader of your home, start acting like it. Let me say a note to, to, I've observed a pretty unhealthy habit in a lot of dating relationships where where the guy seeks to assert his headship over the lady like he's he's trying to transition her gently into marriage and so he enters into this kind of browbeating and making all the decisions. It's not the same thing when you're dating. It's just clearly not. This is to be worked out in a marital relationship, not a dating relationship. So if you have men, if you have daughters, you raise them to know and understand this. You raise them not to be doormats for some future guy, but you prize them, you treasure them, you raise them up to prize and treasure themselves as they are loved in God and Jesus Christ. They don't need a guy to validate that. And men, if you have sons, you show them in the way you treat your wife how they are going to treat their future wife. And so if you are angry and berate your bride and speak down to her and treat her like dirt, expect your sons to do the same thing. It's incredibly unfortunate that for so long men have perverted this text and done so to the great dishonor of our God and to the great mistreatment of the women that his son died to save. Look at, let's look at verse 24. Men, consider that a pause in the whipping. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I love the fact that God's word gives us opportunities to speak into a number of harmful activities and calls us to greater living and fidelity to his truth. And look what, carefully what he says here. Now, as the church submits to Christ, the church is called to live in accordance to God's word. It's called to live in fidelity to those things that he has called us and made us to be. So just as the husband loves his wife sacrificially, or at least he is called to do, pours out his life before her to bring her into this vibrant relationship, is her protector, her guarantor, so too the church submits to Christ and wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So the question comes and it turns. What do you do when your husband calls you to do something sinful what do you do when your husband calls you to do something sinful and for those of you who have never been married or have have had the perfect spouse your entire life and you haven't had to wrangle with this then what you can do is support those who have when your husband calls you to do something sinful you don't submit 510, Ephesians 510. Some very disappointed men out there, some very excited ladies. Ephesians 510. Ephesians 510, he says, In trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, recognize that your task is to, de- to determine what is pleasing to the Lord. Acts 529. Acts 529. Peter and the apostles answered, Listen to this, this is, this is key. He says, we must obey who? God, rather than men. When it comes down to obeying God or submitting to your fallible, fallen 
yet redeemed husband, you obey who? God. When it comes to obeying your fallen, fallible husband who seeks to lead you into sin or obeying God, whom do you obey? You don't seem very sure of this. Let me craft craft a scenario for you. Your husband's been viewing pornography. He wants to lead you into a swingers club. He tells you it will greatly ignite your sex life and make things better for you in in the home. You follow him into that? Or do you obey God? You guys are scaring me. Everybody say, I obey God, God. not man. Man. You guys are really terrifying me. I saw two or three of you back there with your phone typing in things. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. Over the next couple of weeks, as we continue to look at this, recognize that to be faithful to God's word is going to call us to clash with our culture. To live out gender roles in the homes is going to cause you to live out a life that is decidedly different from most of your neighbors, from some of your family members, and it's going to put tremendous strain on the husband. And it's going to put tremendous strain on the wife. And in as much as your children are receiving cultural influences from their friends and visiting them in their broken homes and visiting, visiting them in their homes where you've got two moms or two dads or three dads or four dads or whatever it turns out to be, we're going to continue to be marginalized. Our stance in this is to be winsome with the gospel, to engage people with the truth of it, to be both salt and light. Not to back down, not to accommodate, not to seek to make it more palatable, but to live out a vibrant testimony of faith in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, in our dating relationships. In every relationship we have, we're seeking to display the gospel paramount first. Do you understand? It's critically important that we do this. And we're at a time where there is so much difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, and increasingly so. That to allow the light of the gospel to shine out in you, in your community, becomes so much easier for us to be seen as separate and distinct. But it is still on you to articulate it in such a way that it is not hateful, that it is not pejorative, and does not completely alienate the people that Jesus died to save. Would that we would be a people of the book. Would that we would be a people who dedicate our lives to honoring God in our home lives, in our personal lives, and in the lives of the church.